Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Our Foundations podcast. My name is Joshua, and I will be your host as we dive into a host of topics from the recent section of the Vin Armani interview about the Dim Age. We will look at kind of the birth of Judaism and some different perspectives on that. We'll get into the idea of language and how naming something gives power over that thing. We'll talk about wokeism. We'll get into materialism versus immaterialism and how that manifests within the state and wokeism and religion, these kinds of things. We'll talk a little bit about technology, and I'll get into Habermas and Stiegler. And at least my guess is that we will end with the idea of the future determining the past and bringing out a little more about that and this mystical age and what that means, how that's playing out, coming from what Vin just talked about in the previous interview section. So if you are coming into this episode and you are not caught up on the Dim Age series, then you need to. You will be out of place. You know, yes, you could listen to this episode and get stuff out of it and enjoy it and all that stuff by itself. It technically can stand alone, but the whole point is that I did a long-form interview with Van Armani about his dim age theory, talking about all kinds of stuff, and I've broken that up into sections, and in between each section, I'm doing kind of a deep dive and elaboration on a lot of the topics that get brought up. Because the interview had a lot of depth to it, and I felt like this information was very important, there's a lot more to draw out of that, and so that's the format that this is in. So you need to go back to episode 111 if you have not listened to the first part yet. And that is the first part. Then there are two elaboration episodes after that. Then the previous episode before this one was part two of the Ven Armani interview, getting back to the interview itself. And now this is the first elaboration on that section. I do apologize for the complication of that format. It is fairly complex, but I believe that the content that we're able to draw out of this by doing it in this way, using this format, I think it is well worth it. And uh, at least everybody I've heard from agrees with me on that and is glad that we're doing it this way. So to begin with, I wanted to mention the origins of Judaism because in the interview, Vin just kind of briefly mentions how Judaism came out of Egypt, and it was the Egyptian priests that kind of brought some of those ideas into Judaism. Then Judaism kind of morphed into Christianity at some point, where that goes from the promised people then to everybody being able to have access to God. And then there is some evolution after that with Islam and these types of things. And so Ven kind of just briefly mentioned those things. And I thought that was worth mentioning because I actually recently was talking with someone the other day, and there are a lot of theories about the beginning of Judaism and this exodus from Egypt, and we were talking about that, as well as I've been digging into Orthodox Christianity and their views on things. They're much more mystical and spiritual, so uh, hopefully you can see how that would fit very well with the topics that Vin and I are discussing. And so uh, a lot of this is fresh on my mind, but there is a theory that Judaism really came out of some of the ancient religions that were really being manifested in Egypt at the time of the Israelites being captive in Egypt. And so the idea is that some of the Egyptian priests, basically split off and had to leave. There is a theory about a pharaoh that came into power, wanted to go monotheistic and got kicked out and took 
priests with him. There are other theories related to that, but the overall idea is that the exodus from Egypt was actually Egyptian priests and a host of people with them that believed in this more monotheistic religion, and that was the beginning of Judaism. And that would then be able to trace back to some of the more ancient religions even before the time of that being something that was manifesting in Egypt itself. Now, I would guess that most of you are familiar with the way the standard biblical account is usually thought of in modern times. It's typically that God in the Bible, Yahweh, created everything, and part of that creation was creating humanity, humans, Adam and Eve, and that there was a corruption of humanity. Then God basically wiped the slate clean of everybody except for Noah and his family, and that was with the flood. And then things kind of started up over again. There are other issues that come into play. And basically, over time, God picks out a certain people group, a certain person, starting with Abraham, and develops that into a specific uh, people group that becomes a nation. And that people group, at one point, are taken captive by Egypt. And they are slaves in Egypt for an extended period of time. And then they end up leaving under the uh, leadership of Moses, who was actually raised by the household of Pharaoh. So there are some connections there with that uh, Egyptian training and being brought up in that, that would kind of make sense. You can even go back to the beginning of the story of the Israelites coming into Egypt. You had Joseph was the first one to come in, and he was actually brought in as a prisoner, but then was raised to the level of being second in command right under Pharaoh. And there are some mentions that he makes in that account where his brothers come and they don't recognize him. They had mistreated him in the past, and he pretends to not know who they are, and they don't recognize him either. But he makes some comments about divination and being able to take a cup and divine truth from that cup. And that would be something related to the religions of the Egyptians, not necessarily the religion of the ancient Hebrews. And so again, there are some pieces of this that uh, do correlate and do go with each other. But with the biblical account, the Israelites end up leaving Egypt with Moses, and then God hands down the law, which is referred to as Mosaic Law, and tells the people how you're supposed to act, how you're supposed to organize yourselves as a nation. Now you're going to be a set-apart people group, a nation in and of yourselves, and you're going to establish in a physical area, and kind of lays out all that stuff. And so that's the idea in the standard biblical account. Now what I would like to do is get a little more depth out of this and get in between those two accounts, because I feel like there is a lot to draw out there, and I will admit that I am not a Bible scholar. I am not a theologian. I am not Orthodox Christian. So even though some of this stuff comes from Orthodox theology, that is not my background. I am not Orthodox. So um, take this as I am giving it, and like always, I will do the best I can. So the idea is that if you go all the way back to the beginning, to the earliest civilizations that we have records of, 
of, and you look at their records, you look at their religions, you look at their mythology, look at the fables, all of these things from Sumeria and Babylon and the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, a lot of these things have so many similarities. Look at the Epic of Gilgamesh and Noah and the Flood. Pretty much every culture and civilization has a flood story in their original mythology. Pretty much every religion and mythology contains a divine council of gods in a sense. And there are always multiple gods, or almost always at least, multiple gods. There is typically a most high god, and typically the most high god's son sits on the council and leads the council of gods, and then humanity is well under uh, that in a hierarchical sense. But the gods do dictate things um, that happen with humanity and on the physical world. They typically always will reside on a mountain or up in the sky, in the heavens, in a higher place, so to say. And then there's typically usually a lower place as well that's usually tied in with the concept of death. And so these are things that exist in pretty much all of these ancient religions and mythologies. And if you go into the biblical account, now at first it may seem like, well, that doesn't sound like the Bible that I've heard about. Well, if you really get into the biblical account, there actually is a very similar account there. You have the Most High God would be uh, what is known as God the Father. You have his son, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, Jesus, is how it would be manifested later on. But the idea of the Logos that uh, basically reigns over a divine council. Now, it's not usually referred to as a divine council, but God does have other spiritual beings that are definitely not human. We can refer to them as angels, is how it's usually referred to, but the word angel actually just means messenger, which is technically just a job title, in a sense, of these spiritual beings, and it is one job title of many. So the point is, there are these spiritual beings, and I will go ahead and refer to them as gods, but know that I am saying gods in the little g gods sense, in that they are spiritual beings. They are definitely well above humanity from a hierarchical perspective and their abilities and that kind of stuff, but they are definitely not the same as the Most High God in any means. And so uh, when I refer to gods in a divine council of gods, you can think angels, you can think spiritual beings. You can think Greek mythology, think whatever you want, but hopefully that gets across what I am actually saying. And so in the biblical account, this is true. And God actually does, the Most High God, does divide up territories. I believe it's right after the Tower of Babel, if I remember right. And he divides up territories among these different spiritual beings, among these different gods. And there is a different uh, power or principality or being that is set in charge of different areas, different nations. And this is done not necessarily as a punishment of man, but more to protect man in the biblical account, because God is holy and perfect. And if a corrupt humanity comes in contact with the holy most high God, then that's not going to go too well for humanity, and basically they are going to die. And so uh, in order to protect humanity, God kind of inserts this layer in between man and God, and that would be these powers that he is divvied up 
some sort of authority over some sort of regional areas. And again, the biblical account is not very detailed on this, but you can draw this out. And especially if you look at these other ancient religions and mythologies, you can see how all of this stuff overlays onto each other very well. It's like the historical patterns that we've been looking at when you look at the fourth turning and you look at things that Sarkar was talking about and Vin's Dimage theory and some biblical patterns and basically all the things that I have been talking about in previous episodes, and they overlay on themselves extremely well. They are different, and they're coming from different perspectives, but they are essentially describing the same thing. Now, as a disclaimer, I am going to come from the perspective that the biblical account is the true account, and that the other accounts are other perspectives of this same thing, in a sense. If you look at these other religions, there is pretty much always a rebellion in the divine council where the Most High God is ends up being overthrown, typically by his son, and then the son takes over as the new Most High God, and it basically there's a cycle that happens over and over again. You can think Kronos and Zeus, or you can think uh, the same thing with the Babylonian religions. I think it's Babylonian, not Samaria, but don't quote me on that. Uh, but it's uh, the idea of Molech and Baal and Marduk. You have these gods where one takes over and basically rebels and overthrows another and then becomes the Most High God, and that's now kind of the new Most High God of their religion. Uh, this, the, this happens. And in the biblical account, this happens in the sense that the adversary, who uh, most people refer to as Satan or Lucifer, although there are plenty of uh, questions and issues with that, and I will not get into that, but the point is that the adversary ends up opposing God. And the adversary is part of the divine council. It, he is shown, especially in the book of Job and in other places, as coming into the presence of God, talking with God, speaking with God, having some authority and some interaction with humanity. So uh, he is part of that divine council in some sense, but he ends up rebelling against God. And the difference in the biblical account is that he fails. And so in the other traditions, the rebellion is successful. In the biblical account, it is very unsuccessful. But there is a caveat here in that even with the rebellion, God does give some sort of authority to the prince of this world, as Vin refers to him in some points. I don't know if he has yet in the interview that I have played so far, but uh, the adversary, some authority and power is given, some leeway is given to the adversary by the Most High God. So you could say that since he does have authority, does have power over some aspects of humanity, then that would make sense if you overlay that on the other ancient religions and mythologies of that rebellion occurring and then that God being the one that is worshipped. Now, also, if you look at it from the perspective of God basically stepping back and giving authority for different regions to these other spiritual entities, well, that would make sense as well when you see that people begin worshipping other deities over time and how they believed that 
their god was associated with their people group or their region. And it wasn't necessarily that their god was the most high god that typically was not believed. They believed that other people had different gods. Their god might be the greatest god or the best god, but not necessarily a universal god over absolutely everything who created all things out of nothing. That was not really the idea. And so it would make sense if you did have the Most High God delegate authority to these other beings, and then these other beings end up being worshipped as true gods by these different human groups, and there would necessarily be some rebellion involved with that by these spiritual beings, if you think of the idea of fallen angels. What would it mean to rebel against God? Well, you're not going to go to war with God, and uh, they're not going to be able to kill God in some way. That's just not how it could work. But it is rebellion to receive worship from human beings, from God's creation, instead of it going to God. And instead of pointing to God, uh, being Uh, putting yourself in that place, at least, of a god to these people, that would be a rebellion against the Most High God's divine order in the way that he set things up and the way that things naturally play out. And you also get aspects of this with uh, Prometheus giving fire to humanity, and you have the same thing in the Book of Enoch, where you have the fallen angels giving different technologies to humankind as well. There's a story of rebellion within these other spiritual entities or these other gods, and they come and interact with man. They give things to man or teach things to man, give secret knowledge, things like this, and especially looking back at the ancient Gnostics and different beliefs like that. So man receives these things, and in a way, it's pitched as a good thing, but in every case, man's not really ready for it, and it basically spawns things like warfare, violence, slavery, all these things, which, again, further that rebellion from the ideal of the Most High God. And so you can see how all of these things do match up when you look at the Bible as the interpretation of all of these other different sources, all of these other different myths and religions and archaeological evidence and all of these things, if the Bible is the lens that you look through, then all those other things actually do make a little more sense. And so... If that is the case, then it would definitely make sense that the people of Egypt, the Israelites, if they were in communion directly with the Most High God, and the Most High God either through himself or through the Logos or however that would play out, the Most High God was the God of the Israelites, then it would make sense that as they leave Egypt and they start their own nation and do their own things and interact directly with the Most High God, and they're thought of as monotheistic because they do believe that there is only one true God, that although there are other spiritual entities, both good and bad, there is only one true Most High God, and so that's the monotheistic aspect. But there's an interesting thing to pull out of that, and that would be that when you talk about Judaism, Judaism is not necessarily the same as the ancient Hebrew religion, which is not necessarily the same as the way humanity would have been at creation, if you accept the creation account, which is also not necessarily the same as Christianity. And so as Vin kind of laid out these different religions and how things evolved and people's perspectives of how they interact with God and that kind of stuff, um, these things 
are technically all different, although at the same time, they are all pointing back to one universal of some kind. So it is just really interesting when seen from that perspective. Now, another thing I wanted to highlight is that in the biblical account, as Moses and the Israelites come out of Egypt, they end up having a, a bit of an issue because Moses goes up onto a mountain and receives commands directly from the Most High God. And while he's doing that, the rest of the people end up creating a golden calf. And I'm sure most of you have probably at least heard a reference to this. And they basically make this golden calf as an idol. And they say, this is the Most High God that brought us out of Egypt. Let's worship this and have a giant festival and celebration and party and all this stuff. And then Moses ends up coming down from the mountain and comes down to see that. And uh, that is definitely not something that goes over very well. But the point is that the Israelites weren't necessarily stealing any ideas of who God was from Egypt, because they did believe that that was the Most High God who did bring them out of Egypt. And I'm not necessarily saying this contradicts anything that Vin says, because that still goes along with this Vin's story. It still goes along with the idea that some people have that there was a group of priests that got kicked out, and it was because they followed this one God, and so that one God brought them out, you know, all this stuff. But uh, the point that I am trying to draw out here is that the issue was not necessarily which god they were serving and worshiping. The issue was how they were doing that. And so what they did do, it appears, is that they did steal some of the aspects of worship and religion from Egypt and then apply that to their own god. Now, they weren't supposed to make an image and make an idol for the Most High God. That was not really allowed. That's not what they're supposed to be doing. And uh, the impression, at least, is the way that they were having their festivities and partying was probably not in line with the morality of the Most High God either. And so the issue is not necessarily that they made up some random god and said, oh, let's worship the bull god. That's our new god. No, they were still saying this is the Most High God who brought us out of Egypt. It's the same God. It's just how they were doing that was something that they probably did pick up from Egypt and other surrounding cultures because that's how most cultures did handle interactions with their gods. As we get a little bit more into the idea of powers and principalities and the spiritual realm and that kind of stuff, as Vin and I do, especially in the last two sections of the interview that will come out after these elaboration episodes, and we kind of got into in this recent one that I just released last week, uh, I think it is helpful to have that formulation, that perspective that I just laid out in understanding kind of at least where someone might be coming from and how one might make sense of some of the things that we are saying. Now, at the same time, for the most part, you can look at this from a secular perspective. And uh, Vin made a good point about that with the idea of corporations being gods or being powers and principalities. There, there just is this secular 
perception and perspective on that where they are self-organizing systems. And yes, that's that's not controversial in any way. And so the same is true with most of this stuff. There There is a secular interpretation, if that's the way you want to go with it, but the interpretation that we are generally drawing out is a more spiritual interpretation, a more mystical interpretation that we think, fits with the shifts going on in the culture and society today and fills a void that is missing today. And that bridges pretty well with the next idea that there is a spiritual void in the culture and that has come out of the corruption of the previous age and the previous dominant institutions, the sensate and materialistic culture, and that has shown to be empty. People see that as empty. There are plenty of examples of people that had all the fame, the wealth, the power, all these things, and end up committing suicide because they're not happy. That that life is empty. It's materialistic, and you can get a whole bunch of stuff, but then you just want more stuff. And what happens if you're not happy? That stuff is probably not going to solve your problem. And so this emptiness of a material culture has shown that there is something missing. And the same is true with Christianity, which I'll get into in just a second, the shift from the church to the state. That was the previous dominant religion, and that has now been shown to be corrupted. At least it is not living out the purposes it was originally intended to show. And so it has become very materialistic. I have heard many people try to explain from a scientific or archaeological perspective on how XYZ miracle would have happened and how the stars would have aligned in a certain way. And that's why they saw this sign in the sky and how there must have been some earthquake and that caused a river to part in some way and dry land to appear, you know, whatever. That There are plenty of of ways that people try to explain these things from a materialistic perspective, and that oftentimes is kind of empty. And I'm not necessarily saying that there is no material explanation, but typically with all of these things, there is a material and an immaterial aspect to things that happen in the world. And when you go too far to one side or to the other side, there are issues. And as Vin and I have been talking about, that's kind of what happens is that you start phasing in to the other side. Then you go a little too far on that side and it ends up getting corrupted and ends up then pushing into the shift of mixing back to the other side, which then people go a little too far with that as it continues to grow and get corrupted. And then you you shift back and that's the cycle that we've been talking about and that's what's going on here. So that brings us into this idea. I mentioned how the church was the previous dominant religion and so you had the church and it was dominant, uh, my argument at least, is that it was dominant before the nation state as we know it today was dominant. And I talked about this a decent bit in in season two when I did the parallels with the Reformation and modern shifts going on and talked about that a decent bit. 
bit, but basically you had the church as the dominant player in society. And that was something that is, you know, religion is more of a mystical, spiritual thing, immaterial thing. But that did show to be fairly corrupt over time as uh, the church became, uh, well, you can look at the Reformation and that time period where there is so much corruption going on that actually caused a shift to occur within the society. And uh, there's technology involved there, like Vin talked about with the printing press and so, so many different connections. It's, it's a rich tapestry for sure. But the point is that you had this dominant religion, let's say uh, the church, you had Christianity, and that ends up fading into and shifting into statism as a religion. And statism would be the uh, modern religion, and I say modern in the sense of definitely the past, you know, even 100 years or so, and that has been the dominant religion in most of Western society, where it's not necessarily that Christianity just disappeared, it's that things started to shift and slide further and further and further, where you have less and less influence of Christianity and more and more influence of patriotism or nationalism or communism or capitalism or democracy or whatever denomination of statism that you fully believe in or a society believes in at a time in a given region. But statism ends up being the dominant religion. And Again, Christianity doesn't disappear, it's still around, but it is not the dominant factor in society. And so as statism is shown to do the exact same thing as everything else, all systems do this, all systems degrade, all systems corrupt, and statism has shown to do that as well. When you look at the attitude towards politicians and governments and anti-establishment movements and all of these different things, statism is something that is currently phasing into the background. It's not that it's going to go away, and it's not that it has completely phased out at all by any stretch of the imagination right now. Patriotism is still alive and well in many places in many people's minds. But statism as a religion is now coming into competition with another religion, the new religion, and that would be wokeism. That would be the Church of Woke that Vin and I are talking about here. And so you see this shift from Christianity into statism and then into wokeism. And that is the shift that we are dealing with right now. And the interesting thing about that is that you have a materialistic religion of the state. There is a set hierarchy. And so if you think of the idea, the analogy of the tree, the arborescent view of things are hierarchical, they have their purposes, they have their identities, everything is known, they have their place, you look at it and you know what it is, that is statism. It is very materialistic. And there are people that you can point to as the set leaders, they have certain ranks, you have these signs, you have these symbols, you have your worship songs, you have all of your different rituals and all your things. That's a materialistic religion. And when you shift into wokeism, I think it is pretty evident to all of us that that is an ideational religion. That's an immaterial, that's a mystical or spiritual religion. 
And that's what we are getting into. There is no set hierarchy. It's not like there is a leader of the Church of Woke. It's not that it's even an institutional religion, so to say. Most people don't even realize that it is a religion. And I would argue the same is true of statism. Most people don't view themselves as statists. They probably don't even know what that word is. And if they do, they don't identify themselves as being part of a religious belief system. But in reality, they are. And if you want more about that, I did a whole episode on it, uh, I don't know, about 10 episodes ago or so. And you can check that out, Statism as a Religion. But we are shifting into this ideational religion. And a very interesting aspect of this that Vin really highlighted was the fact that it is not a formal religion and it doesn't have a formal God that people are holding up and looking to that they can identify. Now, Vin does talk about how there's, there is a God, a spiritual entity, a power or principality, or however you want to look at that, a self-organizing system behind this movement, this religion of wokeism, but it's not one that's identified. And so from a participant's perspective, wokeism is a religion without a god that you don't even realize is a religion. Now that is powerful. It's an atheist religion. Now atheism in a way is a religion and you know that's not really worth exploring in this context, but it, the aspect of wokeism as being a religion without a god, it it necessarily means that the religion is purely in human control. And so we the people determine the way that morality is set up, that ethics are set up, the way that people should and shouldn't behave, you know, all of these things that the God is supposed to do in your religious text. And that's another thing. The religious text is not a set text. It's a living document. It can change. And again, you don't have this hierarchy of people. You don't have this ritual of voting to figure things out. You don't have these set representatives to tell you, you know, whether or not a new doctrine is going to be accepted. It's super interesting, especially getting into that idea of the arborescent versus the rhizomatic thinking and uh, that perspective. It is very rhizomatic, where it's something that just pops up and things come up and things come down. Things and systems and people group together and they split apart. And all of these things happen in a way that doesn't have a set hierarchy, a set a set of rules. Uh, it None of this exists. There is no set document. Like with statism, at least in America, is my example here, you can go back to the Constitution and to the Declaration of Independence. You can look at the Founding Fathers as your patriarchs for your religion. There are all these different examples and things and materialistic perspectives that you can have to better understand things. Wokeism does not have that. And I am arguing that that is actually not a weakness, that is a major strength. It is much more difficult to get meaningful resistance against something that you can't even identify, that you can't actually materially resist against. And it's evolving, it's changing, it's an ideology, it's not a set thing. Think of the war on terror, or the battle against COVID-19, the invisible enemy. Uh, all of these types of things are things that 
you can't materially get rid of. You can't destroy terrorism as a concept. That's an ideology that doesn't even make sense. And that's why the war on terror is still going on to this day. Longest war in American history. And so we will see, unfortunately, the same thing with COVID-19. It'll probably be a war against the viruses and pandemics, and it'll expand to many things. Domestic terrorism is probably the next evolution of this. But again, it's always against these things that aren't materialistic. That's what we are shifting into. And since wokeism is one of those things, it is much harder, if not impossible, to actually meaningfully resist. But that's where this next topic really comes into play as being something very helpful in a practical sense, but not necessarily a material sense, but practical at least. And this is where I'm getting into the idea of language. Now, Vin made a comment referencing a quote about someone saying that the universe might as well be made up of language, or as far as he knew, it was made up of language. Now, uh, this is an interesting concept, and when you pair that with the aspect of magic that Vin talks about a lot, you have this idea where what is magic? It is influencing the material through immaterial means, and that is what language does. It influences how we view the material, how we act in a material way through this immaterial means of words and concepts being expressed through language. And so, let's even go to the extreme that the universe is made up out of language. Well, going to that extreme, then what happens when you control the language? All of a sudden, you have a lot more control over the universe. And to a smaller degree, uh, that is the point that I'm trying to bring out here, is that there is power in controlling the use of words and the meanings of words and how a language is perceived and how it is used. That is the idea of Newspeak in 1984. I'll probably get into that a little more when I talk about the technocracy uh, systems that I laid out in the interview. But language is something that does have a lot of power. And I mentioned at the beginning of the episode that I talk about naming things. And this is a concept that's in, it's in movies, it's in books, it's in the dark arts and all kinds of stuff that, uh, lots of religions as well. But when you have a name for something, then you get power over that something. That's typically at least how it's laid out. That basically, when you have a name for something, you can name it by its true name. That gives you some sort of power. And this is something that has a lot of truth to it uh, in the sense that I just laid out about the control over the immaterial aspect of language and how that helps you to actually control really the material world through this immaterial means. It's, it's magic. And that is something that does have true power because it does, in a very material and practical sense, change reality. And I talked about that in previous episodes. I mentioned it again um, in this section of the interview that you just listened to. But this aspect of, you know, just because you change perception, it doesn't necessarily mean you change reality. But in time, you actually truly do change reality. So having control over perception uh, really 
is very important. Now, having control over perception is pretty much the same thing as having control over language. Now, the specifically relevant aspect of controlling language in this context is being able to name something. And I've, I've been thinking about this recently, about why has it been so helpful to go over all of these things that basically I'm going over in this Dim Age series and this conversation with Ven Armani and all these topics. Why has that been so helpful to understand what's going on in the world? Well, it's because I've named them. I have given them a name or we or, you know, all of us are figuring things out and we are able to name some of these things. And as we name things, that gives us some sort of power, some sort of enlightenment, some sort of hidden knowledge or understanding about a thing. And so it's not that we, any of us probably, hadn't seen that political correctness is going a little crazy or that leftism is taking over the universities or that big tech is getting more and more power and they're getting more and more control over the public conversation. You know, all these different bits and pieces, we see these and we have seen these. This is not new. What is new is being able to tie all of that together uh, along with many other things and actually name what that is. And to me, that is very valuable. That's very useful. That's very helpful. It's very practical. Having this framework and structure of the Church of Woke is something that is very helpful in being able to understand really what's going on and what that looks like. Because again, it's a very immaterial thing. It's a very rhizomatic thing. It's very hard to identify. There's not this set material hierarchy. And so just having a name for it and being able to figure out what it is, and that's part of figuring out the true name for something, is to really know what it is that gives you that understanding and that power, that is something that is actually very helpful in a very practical and material sense. In a way, it gives us what people are searching for coming out of the old material culture and into the new spiritual culture. I mentioned that spiritual void that people need and want meaning. They want to know what is morality. They want to have a higher purpose, be part of something greater than themselves. They want to understand the immaterial. Well, this is a need that we all have. That's not just Church of Woke people. That's everyone. And so that can be filled in many ways. Well, a portion of that is being filled just in being able to identify and name and use language to categorize and create a framework for what is going on in the immaterial world. Again, that's one of the aspects that we all seek to resolve is how do we understand the immaterial? And that is something that can be done in a way and in one perspective that can be done through language and naming something. The next aspect gets into language from the perspective of the public sphere and conversation and discourse, these types of things. And that's where I want to bring in the idea of technology and Habermas and Stiegler. Vin talked about the printing press and how that really influenced the rise of Christianity. And again, I did a whole series or a whole season where I discussed many of these things. The printing press came up almost every episode. And so if you want more on that, go back to that. But what I want to get into is the fact that uh, technology 
does create a new public sphere. And that did happen with the printing press. But let's look at what happens now. The new version of this is it's big tech, it's social media, it's the internet. And Habermas specifically, and Habermas and Stiegler, if you're not aware, they are more modern philosophers that talk a lot about the influence of technology and society and politics and these kinds of things. And I'm not going to get into much about their theories other than the brief things that I'm talking about here. But they are interesting if you want to look at them yourselves. But Habermas uh, specifically talks about how the rise of the bourgeois public sphere, and this would be like the reading and intellectual public, how that can be traced to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment period. And so again, that goes prior to Reformation and post-Reformation, this whole time period of transition, of shifts. And again, that's a parallel to what we're going through today. And that this discourse and this freedom to engage in conversation and discourse and use language with each other, that this is paramount to having a successful democratic society. And that is something that we saw some big changes with when that came up in the time period of, you know, I'll say roughly the Reformation. And that is again coming up now. And these are always things that occur within shifts. Venn talked about how it occurs within shifts of religions, but it's also within cultural and societal shifts. And that's the super interesting thing about what we're going through today is that so many of these things are colliding together and happening at the same time. It's not just the religious aspect. It's not just the technology aspect. It's not just the historical patterns and parallels. It's like all of these things are happening at this point in time, whereas in other times in history, typically you had one piece or another piece that was cycling or shifting or changing. But it seems like all of these transitions and shifts are all happening now. And that's that's just super interesting to me, at least. Now, getting into uh, Stiegler, he talks about how pharmacological and technological aspects work together in the evolution of a society. Now, this reminds me of a famous quote by Aldous Huxley. He was the one who wrote Brave New World. He says, and I quote, there will be in the next generation or so a pharmacological method of making people love their servitude and producing dictatorship without tears, so to speak, producing a kind of painless concentration camp for entire societies so that people will, in fact, have their liberties taken away from them, but will rather enjoy it. And that is what Huxley says will happen. But the pharmacological, I think just that word kind of triggered me, but it's it's a similar concept. He talks about the influence of the pharmacological as well as the technological. And that is one of the big aspects of Brave New World. It's the mix of taking your soma to control your emotions. That's the pharmacological aspect with the technological aspect. And that can be the technology that they use in the society for control, monitoring, that kind of stuff, but also the technology of genetics. That's a technological thing as well. And all of these things tie in with some of these aspects of modern magic that I've been talking about and Ven's been talking about, the magic of technology, the magic of genetics. One of the terms that Stiegler uses that's kind of interesting is the concept of pharmacon. And that's something I'm not going to get into in depth, but for a very broad perspective, it's talking about how a thing is a remedy and a poison, and a scapegoat all at the same time. It gives pleasures, it controls, 
and individuality is sacrificed for the collective. These are all aspects of Pharmacon. And again, I I don't have the ability to get into this in depth, but uh, this really relates to the idea of modern technology. Technology is a remedy for many things in society, and it is also a poison in many ways to society, and it is also the scapegoat that many people blame for ills in society. And so it plays this role of pharmacon, which is a concept coming from Stiegler that he talks about a lot, and you can say the same thing about some of the pharmacological aspects of modern society and some of these aspects of magic. You can even look at COVID as being a similar thing. It's being looked at as a remedy in the sense that we have the opportunity through this crisis to have a great reset and to rebuild things and build them back even better than before. And so in a way, it is a remedy to the corruption and the ills that society was facing. It is also obviously a poison. It is a virus. It is killing people. It is also a scapegoat for the pending economic disaster that was going to happen no matter what, for rulers getting more and more power, for liberties being taken away. The scapegoat for all of these things is COVID. And so that's the idea of Pharmacon. Another relevant thing that Stiegler says is that he comes to the conclusion that we have a need for a new economic system. We need to break away from capitalism. That is one of the big problems with society. And so I I just want to kind of randomly say that, but the point is that Stiegler and Habermas, these are philosophers in modern times that are talking about the influence of technology technology and how society is changing the problems that exist and what's happening. And all of these things relate very well to the things that Vin and I are talking about. And so I just kind of wanted to highlight both of them because some of the concepts that they covered are things that are very relevant and kind of back up the ideas and the philosophies that Ven and I are discussing. Another aspect that stood out to me in the conversation with Ven was when we were talking about the role of magic, we were talking about the Church of Woke, and uh, I was later thinking about some of the ways that the Church of Woke wields magic in modern society and relating that to technology. And if you look at something like communications technology, with which Vin specifically was pointing out some different aspects of, but when you look at communications technology and you look at public health and science you kind of get this idea that I was just referring to of technology and pharmacology, both from a perspective of pharmacon, if you really get into it, but this is everything from big pharma to big agro to genetics to all of these things. All of these are magic tools that are wielded by the Church of Woke. They are the ones in control of this. Again, I've talked about this in other episodes about how it doesn't matter if you're a scientist. It doesn't matter if you are a big pharma corporation. It doesn't matter who or what you are. You are subject to the doctrines of the Church of Woke or you get canceled and you then don't have the influence. So the people in charge and the system in charge of these aspects of society, things like science and communications technology, 
those people, big tech, these organizations, these gods, these self-sustaining systems, everyone look at it, these things and people are all subject to the Church of Woke, and therefore they are tools of the Church of Woke. If you go back to the biblical concept of being a part of the kingdom of God, which Vin and I in our metaphors are comparing the kingdom of God as one tree, in a sense, and the Church of Woke as a different tree. But if you look at that biblical concept of being a member of the kingdom of God, you are then an ambassador. You are a representative. You are an icon, an image of God. And with this, you are a tool of God. And so you are a tool of that kingdom, whereas, as I just got done saying, things like big tech and people involved in the Church of Woke are tools for that kingdom. And these tools, these people and these systems, they can use magic to further the kingdoms that they are associated with. And there are different forms of magic that can be used in different ways that affect society differently. And so we'll probably get into that a little more in another place. But I just want to mention that and really point out how the magical tools that the Church of Woke is currently wielding, these tools are extremely potent. And Vin talked about how when a new technology comes into dominance and changes any religion that grows up with that as being something natural with that religion, that gives that religion extra dominance, so to say, extra strength. And that is what's happening with the Church of Woke. These technologies, these aspects of magic, these magical components that I'm laying out here, the different aspects of genetics to technology to social media platforms to all of these different things, they are extremely potent and they are intimately connected with the Church of Woke because they came into being at the same time as the Church of Woke started to rise to prominence and it rose to prominence in part because of these different things. And so the Church of Woke, that is the tree, that is the kingdom that is wielding these aspects of magic in our society, and they are very potent. As Vin and I get further into the interview, we will talk about the flip side of that in the kingdom of God and the different influence and power and different options that we have in a separate kingdom apart from the Church of Woke and what that looks like. Now, again, I am mentioning these things in a religious context. The example I am using is Christianity and the Bible and the Most High God, and that's something Vin references as well. But just because we're doing that doesn't mean that if you are not a religious person in any way that you can't get anything out of this, because the principles that we are talking about are still secularly true. And that's something Vin mentioned with the idea of corporations, and I mentioned it earlier in the episode, but the idea of having two separate kingdoms, two separate modes of thought, two separate goals and sets of morality, two separate modes of magic, these things are 
they don't have to be taken in a religious context. And so I believe that is very useful. And that is the way that we are approaching this. That is the perspective that I am taking. But again, you can get a secular perspective out of this as well. And I would argue that even for those who are religious, it is very helpful to also have that secular perspective. Going back to the first elaboration episode I did when I talked about interpreting scripture in different ways that people do that, how there are multiple meanings. There is a set literal meaning. There's a materialistic meaning. Then there is a deeper meaning, and you get all the way down to a secret meaning that you only get through revelation. And that's the same with these concepts that we're talking about. And that's why they are so deep, because there are so many different meanings. There are so many different layers to them. One of those layers is religious. One of those layers is secular. One of them is material. One of them is immaterial. And it's not necessarily that the secular is material, the religious is immaterial. That doesn't always play out that way. And sometimes all four are different layers of meaning to these concepts that we're talking about. And so I just want to point that out because that is worth separating in your mind as you're figuring these things out and thinking about these things later on about how there are many layers to these concepts and these kind of philosophical frameworks that we are creating here and describing. The final thing I want to cover is the aspect of the future determining the past. The way Vin says it, it comes across, and he might fully mean it to come across this way. This might be intentional, I don't know, but uh, it comes across that it is true and factual that an event or a thing is true or factual because of some future perspective or some future occurrence, and therefore the future is what determines the past, especially in a mystical age. And I want to highlight, since that's kind of the perspective that was mentioned in the interview, I want to highlight the other perspective. Again, different layers of meaning here. But it's not just that this is a mindset of a mystical age, but going back to what I was talking about earlier with tools of the Church of Woke, this is one of those tools, and it is something that they have have been wielding actively and effectively. Because when you have an age and a shift where the future is determining the past, and you have an entity, a system, the Church of Woke, whatever you want to call it, if it is in control of this aspect and how it is playing out, and it is an aspect that is playing out and is taking dominance because of the age we are in, then again, that becomes a very potent tool, and that is something that is definitely worth keeping an eye out for. I would say personally that it's something about like what I was talking about earlier about perception changing reality, a similar thing, at least from my perspective on the future determining the past. It's not that the future actually determines the past. And I, I would argue with at least the way it, that was presented in the interview with Vin, where he talked about how the Bible, if it holds for hundreds of years, then therefore it is true. And I would argue that that's actually not true, but that um, that is why it is perceived as true, especially in a mystical age, and I would totally agree with that, and um, that very well might be what he was intending by that. I really don't know, but the point is that it really, in the end, doesn't end up mattering. You have the aspect of the victor writes the history, and at some point, once it is fully believed, and once people are acting on this concept of the future determining the past, then over time, 
then it truly does determine the past, at least from any perspective that we could possibly have. For all we know, the past is what the histories say that it is. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it truly is what the histories say it is. And oftentimes it's not. But in a time when the future determines the past, that is a tool that can be wielded and this aspect can be used and manipulated in a way that ends up being very effective and essentially becomes true. It's like the biological thing of male and female that Vin talked about, you know, very opening remarks of the interview where uh, you have these biological aspects of a man has this body part and a woman has that one. And that is very simple. That should be very obvious from a materialistic perspective. But when you start to change that and when the ideology starts to determine these biological aspects and it no longer becomes biological, but gender now becomes this immaterial aspect because we are going into this mystical age and it is all ran by the Church of Woke, then in the end, at some point in the future, if this continues at least, then gender will be something that is not biological. Just it becomes that. It's not necessarily that it is that. And it's not necessarily that as perception starts to change, it is that. But at some point, it ends up becoming that. And again, that's that aspect of being able to control and manipulate language and words. That's what's happening here. It is controlling the language to change the definition and the meaning of things. And that is a magical technique that can be used to change perception, which ends up actually changing reality. And this is how it truly plays out with the future determining the past and how we go about that and how that is done and what form that takes is determined by our view of the future. What is the idealistic future for us? What is a true utopia? And based on what that is, what is a futuristic sense of unity and morality and all these things? And whatever that is, that is what we judge the past by, as Vin was talking about. And that is what we mold the present into. And that's what's really going on here. There, There is a slightly related aspect of this that is not a new thing. And that would be that when you get into the corruption of the education system in America specifically, and you get back to the Ford, the Rockefeller, the Carnegie Foundations, um, they basically ended up uh, controlling the education system and had a plan and a systematic way of going about that and ended up doing so pretty effectively. I have whole episodes on that as well. Go to the corruption and conspiracy episodes from season one. But uh, the, the part that really stands out to me in this context is that what they focused on when they wanted to have an impact on changing and manipulating society is number one, they focused on the education system. And uh, that definitely has some merit to look into there, and that's a big deal. But the specific aspects of the education system that they focused on, and they split it up among themselves, were psychology and history, especially. And again, this gets into the idea of the power of controlling the narrative and controlling history of manipulating the past based on the present and the future that they wanted and manipulating perception. How do you do that? Well, that's why you get into the field of psychology. And uh, these things 
are relevant and they have been used before. They are not new. This isn't something that no one's ever figured out in the past. They have been figured out and they have been used. You've got something like the Rhodes Scholarship, where it was this idea of building a worldview out of the, say, the priest or the intellectual class. If you go back to um, the caste system and Sarkar and um, those different things that we had been talking about, the commoner, the priest, and the intellectual, the warrior, and so on. Well, the idea of the Rhodes Scholarship was to catch this priest, this intellectual class early on, and you can go back to Plato talking about the importance of catching children early on in education and how that really helps you control society. But um, this was the idea of the Rhodes Scholarship was that you catch them early on and you make sure that the education they receive, and these are the best, the brightest, these will be likely the most influential in society. Then it's especially in an age where that class has a lot of power coming out of the age of empire into the age of economics that is out of the age of the rule of the priest and intellectual class and into the rule of the merchant class. And again, you see that here because it is the intellectual class that is being manipulated by the merchant class. If you look at, you know, these like the Rockefeller Foundation, Carnegie Foundation, these types, and those were all part of the Rhodes Roundtable groups. And, you know, that's all part of the Rhodes Scholarship. Again, if you really want more on this, go to the corruption conspiracy episodes. I did a whole one on the Rhodes Roundtable table groups, and that's a whole nother rabbit hole to get down. But the point is that what they did was they influenced the prime individuals in society in order to match the future's view of the past and the present. And so Rhodes and the others uh, surrounding him, the other people involved in the roundtable groups, you've got the Rockefellers, you've got you know all these different names I've already mentioned, they all had a similar worldview and a similar goal that they wanted to get to. And the way they chose to get through that was mainly through education and mainly by controlling the way people thought, the way they perceived things, controlling the language and the narrative and controlling history. And again, it's all of these things that we've just been talking about, about what the Church of Woke uses. That is the magic. Those are the tools that the Church of Woke has. And that is what we need to be aware of and be watching out for, as well as being able to identify and name these things so that we then have more control and more power over those things. And again, I guess we just cycle right back to the beginning of this episode. And so with that, I am going to end this episode. That will be the end of this first elaboration on the second part of the Ven Armani interview. I'll get into the different aspects of technocracy and those different frameworks that I had mentioned in the interview, and I went through them pretty quickly and briefly, but I'll draw those out a little bit more, talk about the illusions of 1984 and Machiavelli and Brave New World, which I, I mentioned some of those briefly in this episode as well, but I'll, I'll draw those out a little more, flesh those ideas out more, talk about rhizomatic versus arborescent thinking. And that's something that uh, Vin really latches onto and that metaphor of the tree. And so I'll get into that a little more in the next elaboration episode. And that'll be the plan for that. I might possibly get into 
more about powers and principalities and corporations and self-sustaining systems and all those things at the uh, later, probably the later half of that section of the interview. I might get into those, do technocracy and all that, or it might end up being three elaboration episodes where I do one completely on technocracy and then a whole nother one on the rest of those topics. We will see. I really don't know. But until then, I hope that you stay tuned and hopefully you have been enjoying these episodes and these deep dives into these different concepts. If you have any questions or anything in particular that you want me to make sure that I elaborate on and something you want me to draw out a little more or a question that you have for Vin or you uh, want to know what he was intending by a certain thing, I do have some communication with him. So uh, feel free to email me and send me any requests. I would also like to say thank you just for listening, for being here, for being a part of this. And I appreciate any of you who have left ratings and reviews. I greatly appreciate the patrons, the people that are supporting this podcast with their hard-earned money. That is something that I recognize and I greatly appreciate. And it's encouraging to me to have that support. I think that is all I have for now. So until next time, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundation's podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.